This episode of the Oz Movie Geek podcast is sponsored by Kix. Kix is an online film and television retailer specializing in the latest Sony, Universal, and Paramount films and television shows. You can use the exclusive code OZGEEK15 to receive 15% off your order. Thank you to the wonderful team at Kix. Now to the review. Hello and welcome to the latest episode in the Oz Movie Geek podcast. I'm your host, Pato. Today I'll be doing a review of Netflix's latest horror thriller, uh, Things Heard and Seen, based on the popular book uh, from author Elizabeth Brundage. Uh, and this was a film that I wasn't going to even watch, let alone talk about. But after watching it, I did have some thoughts that I just wanted to get out there and discuss. And I think it is a film, if you're not that into horror films, it's something that you could definitely get around because it's not overly scary, if scary at all. I found myself to be quite, I don't want to say bored, but during it, I was definitely just sort of just waiting for something to happen. But I think it's because of that trailer. The trailer definitely gives off the impression that it's more of a straightforward horror flick, but there's a lot more going on under the surface here, which I do appreciate and I definitely want to discuss. I'm not going to get into too much detail regarding the ending, but this review will contain spoilers. Um, but I, uh, the ending does have these philosophical implications that I don't really think I have the brain capacity to actually talk about because it confused the hell out of me. And I've watched the ending twice now just so I could actually talk about it. But I thought it's best to probably give that spoiler warning just in case I do go into details that might, I don't know, um, proved to be a little different um, than what you were expecting. So without further ado, let's just get stuck into it. So take it away, trailer. Hey. Hey. I think I've found the perfect house for us. You thought this through? George really wants this. I owe it to him to at least try. You know, when I saw this place, I knew immediately it was for us. There's definitely updating that needs to be done here. Yeah, certainly could use a paint job. Yeah, but look at these bones. I love it so much. You're an exceptional husband. And you are an exceptional life. town and I would love to learn more about the older homes in the area. I don't know anybody up here. Well, you do now. My wife doesn't know what happened here. I think it would be better if we kept it that way. Everything in the natural world has a counterpart in the spiritual realm. We're all so inconsequential. I say death is only the beginning. Wife is the true believer of the family. You do not want to get us started on all that stuff. What the? I'm starting to see things, and I'm scared to tell George about it. If you're coming in, shut the door behind you. George, the whole story. 
I need to know what happened. So Things Heard and Seen was uh, written for the screen by uh, Shari Springer-Berman and also directed by Shari and um, also Robert Polsini, who also had a bit of a hand in that screenplay as well, and stars Amanda Seyfried, James Norton, Natalie Dyer, Alex Nustafa, and also Anna Sophia Hedger, um, and follows an artist who relocates to the Hudson Valley and begins to suspect that her marriage has a sinister darkness, one that rivals her new home's history. So it's pretty much a classic haunting tale, but to the backdrop of, you know, like a house. So we've had these sorts of stories before with like the Amityville Horror um, being probably the main one, but you've also got like the Poltergeist series as well, and I guess to some extent the Conjuring films. So we have this idea that this house has sort of some sort of sinister indication um, and relevance to this family. Is it attached to them? Is it attached to the home? What's going on? So the film explores a lot of that, but it does so in a very slow burn type of way, which I'm not against because some of my favorite horror flicks over the last 10, 15 years have been those slow burn horror flicks. I love The Babadook, uh, which is a film that definitely has implications outside of its main general plot. The Witch is another one I really enjoyed and The Lighthouse too. Um, and these films definitely do that slow burn really well. And I guess Ari Aster's films, Midsummer and Hereditary, do the exact same thing too. They build atmosphere and tension through, you know, smaller character moments, these great sequences with, you know, like the house itself um, and really exploring the relationship between um, James Newton's character and Amanda Seyfried's character, which I really did enjoy. Um, and I think that's the strongest elements of this film is their relationship and I guess the turmoil in their relationship too. James Newton isn't at what he seems. And I think as we explore his character further, it doesn't seem like the house itself has had implications on him because I think he was just a bad guy to begin with. We find out that he's been like, for, he forged a letter to actually get into the job that he's in. Um, it, there was implications of what he did back at his old um, uh, place of employment as well. Looks like there's a bit of repeated history as well with his, um, I guess, his adultery too. We find out during the film that he's sleeping with Natalie Dyer's character, who is, um, in fact, one of his students, and just things like that during the film. So we know that he's not really a good guy, but is it the house that's sort of influencing him? And I think we explore that during the film. My takeaway from it, and I don't know if it's different uh, in the novel, but my takeaway from it is that he was originally a bad guy and I think the house maybe brought it to the forefront. Um, but his life starts to crumble around him as lies upon lies sort of start to show their ugly head. And I did enjoy that aspect of the film. And like I said, their relationship is probably the more intriguing parts of the story. Both actors are very interesting in their roles too, respectively. Uh, Amanda Seyfried is very... I want to say she she feels like a very hollow um, person that you don't really get a lot from her, um, but I think that's a lot of her character herself. It's not a wooden performance by any means. I think it's just the haunted nature of who she is as a person. She's dealing with an eating disorder, which comes into play during the film as well. But I was a bit nervous at the very beginning. So we have a, 
um, a very sharp cut at the start, whether they're at a dinner party, I believe. Um, and what happens is Amanda Seyfried's character um, is um, uh, she's bulimic and she's uh, they're like, oh, where is she? And she's like, oh, she's not feeling well. Straight cut to her throwing up in the bathroom, but we know just from a few remarks made from other people during that sequence that she is in fact bulimic. And I thought, oh, no, it's going to be over the top, beating you over the head with like it's obvious what's going on. But the film definitely doesn't do that throughout. It treats its audience with respect in the sense that it lets the audience figure out what's going on during the film without telling us too much. So the ending is ambiguous as hell, which I'll get into briefly, like I mentioned in the intro. Um, But during the film, there's some really interesting things that are set up, but the payoff for me wasn't really there. So we have this interesting uh, relationship with these two boys who uh, are working at their house. So um, one played by Alex Nustafa um, and also the other boy, um, I think his name is Jack Gore. Um, And I thought that they were, uh, yeah, uh, interesting characters. Character set up. So we find out that their family or their, I think it was uh, the dad killed the mum potentially. I think that was the breakdown of the story. Yeah, it was. So the dad had killed the mum and the two boys had survived and now they're living with their uncle, but they still go back to the house. And again, it's that sort of implication that the house might be drawing them there. So that's sort of the setup for their characters. But you think that there might be even something sinister going on with the two boys, you know, what? why are they keep coming back, you know, is there a spiritual connection with their their mother who's deceased, who we see, um, uh, like we see the mum in certain sequences as a, as a spirit, um, she makes herself visible to the daughter um, and James Newton at one stage as well, and I thought, oh, hang on, is something going to happen here, you know, there's some sort of relationship with the kids that we're going to explore, but we don't really get anything there, um, and the spirits that do show up, they're not scary in any sense that they show up um subtly um one sequence in particular was a bit startling but the others are quite subtle so um i thought their inclusion was interesting having these spirits wandering around the house and that's definitely my intrigue as you guys know i love horror films so my intrigue for this was oh it's a haunted house story cool we haven't seen a good one of those in quite some time so i'll hereditary aside because it's more possession based um, but yeah, cool. I'm I'm all on board. Let's go. But we don't really get a lot of that stuff. It's there, but it's sort of in the background, which was a little disappointing. Instead, we have strong character work, which is great. And I found myself for a two and a, a two hours fifteen. I think this movie is runtime wise. I was like, wow, this is actually going by okay. It was slow in parts, and like I said, I did find myself bored at the beginning. But once things started to pick up with their relationship and the intrigue of you know James Newton sleeping on. Um, Amanda Seyfried and there uh, she's also hooking up with the boy that's at the house and it's like what's going on um, I was enjoying that stuff because all that setup was really interesting and the characters themselves like I said that was the more interesting part of the story but instead it doesn't focus as heavily on that stuff in the later half of the film so the the third act in particular things come to a head as James Newton's like his life is starting to crumble around him because like I said the lies are starting to rear their head so uh, Amanda Seyfried's aware that he's having an affair. Um, there's also this stuff with um, her, the friend that she's made in town who also works at the uh, college as well. Um, and we find out that, yeah, James Newton's lied to get this job here and she's aware of that too. So we start to get, you know, a bit of tension between those two characters and James Newton's making up stories about, you know, getting her away because she's too close to Amanda Seyfried. 
then he runs her off the road and she's in hospital. But then we find out later that she's actually alive. So she's going to be able to tell them what happened sort of thing. Um, then we also have a sequence as well where the head of the school, um, who's into all the spiritual stuff as well, he uh, is going to go to the board of directors or the board of the school to say, hey, uh, James Newton's actually a scumbag and he lied to get his job here. Uh, he's being upfront about it. So James Newton kills him. So we find out, yeah, it, it just all starts to unravel and James Newton's sort of just trying to cover up so much stuff. And then it's just worked out that, hang on, this guy's actually pretty shitty. He ends up dying at the end of the film. And I think that's the implication. I'm not entirely sure. But because he ends up killing Amanda Seyfried's character, it still feels like he won. Because at the end of the day, there's the hint that potentially you know, he's going to get charged with these crimes. But because he's dead, it doesn't really matter. It feels like he did get away with murder. So at the end of the day, I, I sort of felt a bit let down by that conclusion because I wanted to see a bit of finality there and I wanted to see him get his, you know, what he deserved because he kills the main character in Amanda Seyfried and, you know, he's not a good guy. He's killed a couple people at this stage. He's ran someone off the road who we presume to be dead until we see the final shot. But it just felt very, it felt like it was setting itself up to be something different. So it was kind of a letdown to see where it ended up going, which was disappointing for me because I did enjoy that setup. Like I said, the characters were all a, not a lot of fun. That's the wrong word. Um, but they're all enjoyable because we could understand motivations we knew where certain characters were coming from. So all of that stuff was really interesting. It was just the way that it sort of came to a head that disappointed me. And I wish that if more time was spent maybe on that conclusion, now we're already sitting at a pretty long runtime. So it made me think maybe originally that this was meant to be a miniseries. We know that Netflix have done this already with Haunting of Hill House um, seasons one and two. And I like what they did with that story because, again, based on a book, but the way that they turned that story, you know, into that that series, and I think it came down to the talented direction of Mike Flanagan too because this is a good-looking film. It's well-acted. The story elements are there. It's just the way that it's structured and pays off. And apparently the book's really good. And after watching the film, it made me want to go and check out the book because I was watching this and I was like, this is a really interesting story and all these story elements are all interesting by themselves it's just together they don't flow on as well as what i wanted them to maybe the spirituality stuff is explored a bit more in the book but instead here it's sort of left in the background to the character stuff which i did enjoy but i think there's a balance in here somewhere that could have been found so that both elements get their due and maybe if they were used correctly then when we get to that conclusion, it would be a little more satisfying. Instead, we have an ambiguous ending that I'm not opposed to. I like ambiguous endings. Um, the Empty Man, I've talked heaps about how much I enjoyed that film uh, as, of, as of late. And that film is ambiguous as hell during it. But it's just the way it's executed. And again, the way that that story progresses. I just found myself intrigued more so in that film. Um, and, you know, they're completely different films. I, I can't compare the two of them. But... What I'm trying to say is that ambiguity isn't a bad thing in a film if it's done correctly. Here, it just feels like it's more of an afterthought. It's not done so in a way where it's rewarding for the audience to make up their own conclusion of what you think has happened. I didn't enjoy myself discussing the ending of this film uh, with people who had seen it. 
I found myself more frustrated because everyone had a different interpretation, which is normally fine. And I'm not saying anyone's right or wrong. What I mean by that is that I found myself more annoyed because I was like, ah, it just doesn't really click though. Like I can see what you're saying. I can see what I'm saying. I'm thinking the ending that I've come to doesn't even really make sense. So I just wish that they had have explored that spirituality stuff more. So if the ending is what a majority of people are thinking, then it would make a lot more sense. But instead, the ending just doesn't really fit well. So what essentially happens at the end here is that uh, James Newton's character, uh, he's going out on um, the sailboat that he's taken from the professor that he's killed. Um, and he essentially sees like it, it's meant to be symbolic of the afterlife. Um, we see it in um, mentioned numerous times throughout the film on the front cover of this book. And he's out on the boat and he sees it and he starts screaming and then he becomes one of the paintings that you see him discussing uh, during the film. So it made me think, is he going to the afterlife? Is that what they're saying? Or he's going to hell? Is that what that means? It's just the way that it's, it's, it's shot and framed and the way that it quickly concludes. So for a two hour and 15 minute movie, you'd expect a conclusion to feel appropriate for that runtime. But instead... It feels rushed, which is a strange thing to say for such a long horror film. I'm used to my horror films being around that 90-minute mark, you know, let's get in there and get it done kind of thing. But instead, this film just feels a little it feels a little rushed in its execution. And I think that comes down to just, like I said, I think it's the talent behind the camera. They have the elements there. They just haven't really put those elements cohesively into this story and woven it into something that's a bit more meaningful. It tries to be meaningful, but in its execution, it sort of falls apart a little. Um, But like I said, I I did enjoy a lot of elements of this film. Um, There are some really strong performances. I actually liked the performance by um, uh, by Alex Nostashir's, I'm probably saying his name wrong, Nostatir, I think, maybe, as Eddie, um, he was really good in the film and I actually would like to see a little more of him because I found him to be quite entertaining. Um, I thought Natalie Dyer is good. Uh, she always is really good, of course, playing Nancy in Stranger Things. Um, and it was cool to see Karen Allen. She shows up here in a brief um, sequence and I really enjoyed seeing her there because I love Karen Allen. Um, so it was really cool to see that, her in the film. And Amanda Seyfried is really good in this type of role. She was in a similar role last year in You Should Have Left, which I also reviewed, and a film that I've grown to like a lot more the more I think about it. Um, But yeah, this film itself is quite entertaining still, and I think if you're looking for that entry-level horror film that's not going to throw you off too much, I think you will enjoy this one because there's a lot to delve into. I like the characters. I like the way it explores the characters. They feel like they have a lot of depth, um, which I enjoyed. And I like its execution. It's a really good-looking film, which is something I wasn't really expecting from that trailer, but I ended up enjoying it more so than what I thought I was going to. I'm going to give Things Heard and Seen a 6 out of 10. It's definitely not perfect, and it has a lot of problems. It doesn't deserve the 5.3 rating it currently has on IMDb. I think it's hovering around the 44% margin on Rotten Tomatoes. It really just depends on what you're looking for. I, myself had, you know, a decent time with this kind of thriller horror film. Um, There's not a lot of these type of horror films anymore. They're normally the jump scary mainstream ones or really obscure indie titles. There's no middle of the road horror thrillers anymore. So I found myself enjoying the film for that reason, that it felt like something that 
we don't really get much of anymore, which I did enjoy. So that brings this review to a close, guys. So thank you all for listening. Make sure you check out my other reviews that I've done recently. I've done ones for Spiral, Willy's Wonderland, uh, Boss Level. I've covered a lot of titles. So definitely go and check those ones out, guys, if you haven't already. And look forward to more content coming at you very shortly. Also, make sure that you follow me on Instagram, like my Facebook page, not page, um, and make sure that you rate and review the podcast down below too. All your support means a lot to me, guys. So thank you very much. And until next time, peace out.